Well, good morning, everybody, and happy new year. It is January 1st, 2023. I cannot believe that it's already 2023. We opened the doors here at the sanctuary in November of 2020, which means that we have been open now for just over two years. And one of the things that we were thinking about as this Sunday was approaching was what could we do, something special for all of you, something that would be unique And so I went back through sermons that I've preached since the doors opened here and tried to identify those sermons that I felt were of primary importance. And while, in a sense, every sermon I preach here is important because every sermon is telling you about God and how much we need God, there are certain sermons that emerge as more important or as of primary importance. And this one that you're about to watch, and I made my way through a ton of sermons, which I don't like doing. I don't like watching myself preach. I don't like listening to my own voice. But I went back through a lot of sermons that I preached over the last two years and identified this one, this one that you're about to watch as one of premier and primary importance. It was in a series that I preached uh, back in early 2021 called Unmasked. It was a series on the Ten Commandments. And this is part three of that series, and I hope that you are arrested by it, I hope that you are moved by it, and I hope that you have an encounter with God's grace that changes you forever. Exodus chapter 20, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Last week we looked at the first commandment, and this week we're going to look at the second commandment, but each week... I'm going to start at the beginning of Exodus chapter 20 and read through the commandment that we are going to look at that particular morning. So Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I could preach three months just on that. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Last week, I mentioned, I said, that a low view of God's law produces legalism because A low view of God's law causes us to conclude that we can do it. That the bar is low enough for us to jump over. A low view of the law makes us think that God's standards are attainable, that the goals are reachable, that the demands are doable. That's a low view of the law. And so a low view of the law makes us self-righteous and judgmental, believe it or not. I mentioned last week that oftentimes people think that those who talk a lot about grace have a low view of God's law. And those who talk a lot about law have a high view of God's law. But the reverse is actually true. 
that it's a low view of God's law that produces legalism because it deludes us into concluding that we can reach God's standards, that we can do what God has called us to do in the way that God has called us to do it. Self-righteousness and judgmentalism doesn't come by taking God's law too seriously. It comes by not taking it seriously enough, okay? I'm going to read you this illustration that I read a number of years ago from Max Lucado, and I thought it was just brilliant in this regard. He wrote, judging others is the quick and easy way to feel good about ourselves. Standing next to all the Mussolinis and Hitlers and Jeffrey Dahmers of the world, we boast, look God, compared to them, I'm not that bad. But that's the problem. God doesn't compare us to them. They aren't the standard. God is. And compared to him, St. Paul argues, there is no one who does anything good. Suppose God simplified matters and reduced the Bible to one command. Thou must jump so high that you touch the moon. No need to love your neighbor. No need to follow Jesus. Just touch the moon and you'll be saved. We'd never make it. There may be a few who jump three or four feet. Even fewer who jump five or six, but compared to the distance we have to go, no one gets very far. Now, God hasn't called us to touch the moon, but he might as well have. He said something even harder. You must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. None of us can meet God's standard. As a result, none of us deserves to judge anybody else. Why? We aren't good enough. Jeffrey Dahmer may jump six inches, and you may jump six feet, but compared to the 230,000 miles that remain, who can boast? The thought of it, he says, is almost comical. Um, so let me ask, begin by asking a true or false question. We're starting this morning with a quiz. I saw this quote uh, about two weeks ago, and, uh, well, I'm not going to give it away how I felt about it. Maybe you'll see in a second. True or false, okay? You don't need to answer out loud, but just in your mind. This is the quote I read. God uses obedient people of courageous faith to build his kingdom. Um, I'm going to say it again, okay? True or false? Because this stuff, don't say it out loud. Because this is, this is primarily the stuff that comes from the Christian community. This messaging, okay? So I'm going to say it again, true or false? God uses obedient people of courageous faith to build his kingdom. Now, the first thought that came through my mind when I read that quote after a slew of four-letter words, I have to be honest, um, was, does this person read the Bible? Because what I, the Bible that I read, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament too, uh, seems to give many biographies of train-wrecked people that God uses to do amazing things. 
And God's intention in doing that is very specific. If he didn't use weak people to do his work, but instead used strong people to do his work, who would get the credit? The strong people. They would go, wow, of course he can do it. Look how strong he is. But since, as this commandment says, God is a jealous God in the sense that he alone deserves the glory, I find that God, according to the Apostle Paul in Corinthians, chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. See, anyone who believes that God uses obedient people of courageous faith to build his kingdom, anyone who believes that has a very low view of God's law. Because a high view of God's law exposes just how disobedient and faithless we are. Because, and here's, here's the problem. God doesn't simply require obedience. He requires perfect obedience. He doesn't simply demand courageous faith. He demands flawless faith. Courageous is easy compared to flawless. Obedience is easy compared to perfect obedience. So whoever said that, original quote, set the bar way lower than God does. And guess what the result is? You read a quote like that and you initially think, that's empowering. It's telling me what I'm capable of doing. Okay? But in truth, it actually produces massive legalism. Why? Because this is what we walk away thinking when we hear a statement like that. If you want God to use you, you better be obedient and courageous. You want God to use you? Well, then you better be obedient. And you better be courageous because God only uses obedient people of courageous faith to build his kingdom. You want to be a part of building his kingdom? Well, then you better get up, be courageous. You better be faithful. You better be obedient. See how a low view of God's law creates legalism? When we hear a statement like that, what does it do? Well, first of all, it deludes us into thinking that we can actually do it. And then when we convince ourselves that we are doing it, not only do we become proud, but we tend to look down on the people who we don't think are doing it. Okay? So J. Gresham Machen, who was a, a, a Presbyterian churchman from the early mid-1900s, said this, great quote, a low view of law always brings legalism. A high view of law makes men a seeker after grace. And then he says, pray that the high view may prevail. See, the purpose, of, the purpose of God's law is to unmask just how cowardly and faithless and selfish and weak and needy we are because it's only when we finally admit that we can't do it that we look to the one who did everything for us. So as I mentioned last week, the first two commandments address idolatry and the temptation for us modern, sophisticated Westerners is to think that we're not guilty of this. You know, idolatry is what 
primitive people in far-off lands are guilty of, people that are so primitive they do things like bow down to statues and rocks and trees and mountains and stuff like that. Uh, We understand them to be idolaters, but not us. I mean, after all, we believe in God and we don't do those kinds of things. But idolatry, as I mentioned last week, is not what we think it is. In fact, I'm pretty sure that if you were asked to describe yourself with five words, I doubt the word idolater would be one of them. Okay? Um, But when we understand what idolatry is, we can't escape the fact that we're all guilty. That we are all idolaters. As I mentioned last week, I think it was last week, um, the reformer John Calvin in the 1500s said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. We take the good gifts that God gives us and we turn them into objects of worship, things we depend on to make life worth living. Um, So the Bible defines idolatry as anything more important to you than God. Anything that occupies your heart and captures your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give to you what only God can give. That's how the Bible defines idolatry. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, calls an idol a counterfeit God. And he says a counterfeit God is anything so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol, in other words, is something or someone we can't live without. Can't live without it. To live without it would be the equivalent of death for us. Most idols in themselves are good gifts from God. Our our spouse, our our children, our hopes, our dreams, our, our work, our success, our skill, our looks, our reputation. All of which in and of themselves are not bad things. The trouble comes when these things become more important to us than God. Then they become idols. When this happens, we end up depending on these things and these people to provide us with the meaning and the purpose and the freedom and the security and the significance that only Jesus can provide. We make lesser gods out of good things. Gods that can't really deliver to us what we desperately need most. So an idol is anything or anyone that you conclude in your heart you must have in order for your life to be meaningful, valuable, secure, exciting, free. That's an idol. And they run deeper than you think, believe it or not. There are, one could say, surface idols like money, possessions, health. But why is it specifically that we idolize money, possessions, health? When you start asking that question, you get under the surface and you find beneath the surface idols. Listen to this. Let's say a person cheats on his income tax form. Why does he do that? Well, you say because he's a sinner. Yes, but why does his sin take this particular form? The man only cheated because he was making money and possessions more important than God and his favor. Why do we lie or fail to love or break our promises or live selfishly? Of course, the general answer is because we are sinful. 
But the specific answer is that there is something besides Jesus that we feel we must have to be happy. Something that is more important to our heart than God. So I was telling Stacy last week or so uh, that I was having a conversation with a pastor many years ago. And we were talking about idolatry and sort of the under the surface idols that exist in all of our hearts. And he said about five years into his marriage, he was an older man by this time, and he said about five years into his marriage to his wife, he said, we realized that we both lied to each other all the time. Not about big stuff, just stupid stuff, you know? Uh, did, you know, did you do this or did you do that? Or, you know, oh yeah, I did it. Or when they really didn't or whatever. And he said, you know, five years into our marriage, we looked at each other and we said, we lie to each other all the time about the stupidest things, things you don't need to lie about. And he said, so we started asking ourselves, why, why do we do this? And he said, what was exposed was the fact that we, we were idolizing approval acceptance. We were lying because we thought that the truth might cause us to forfeit the approval or the acceptance of my spouse in this particular moment for this tiny little matter. Getting to the under the surface kind of idolatry. Um, So the real question, I think, uh, is not only what are we depending on to make life worth living, but what, what keeps us going? What is it that makes life feel alive? We all want our lives to count for something. We all crave meaning and security. We all long to be loved. We all long to be accepted. God gave us the desire for those things. Those things are good. They're not bad. The question is, where are we looking to find it? Work, pleasure, relationships, financial security, our children, our spouse, beauty, sex, our possessions, our reputation, our accomplishments, our efforts. Where are we looking or to what or to whom are we looking um, to fill that void that we have for meaning and security and love and acceptance and all of that stuff? What are you depending on to make life worth living I've said it before, it's an embarrassing admission, and I've said this for years, um, but preaching can become an idol for me. And it can, I mean, think about that, preaching, okay? Something as seemingly good, sacred, and noble as preaching can become an idol. Well, how do I know that? Because down deep, there is a part of me that needs you to think I'm a good preacher for me to feel important, Okay? Now, you can laugh at me all you want, but you all have that stuff too. Um, Things that you feel you need in order to feel loved, accepted, secure, safe, free, in order for life to feel meaningful. Um, You see, you are a worshiper. I think sometimes inside the church we conclude that worship is something we do when we sing songs on Sunday morning. It's uh, much, much, much bigger than that, okay? You are a worshiper. You were created, designed, wired for worship. The word worship comes from the old idea of worth-ship. 
And it means that we all live in service to those things that we attribute ultimate worth to. And what we attribute ultimate worth to, what we worship, believe it or not, depends on what we fear the most. Okay, I'm going to unpack this. So if your greatest fear is rejection, you will worship approval. If your greatest fear is suffering, you will worship comfort. If your greatest fear is uncertainty, you will worship control. If your greatest fear is insignificance, you will worship influence, power, the gaining of power. If your greatest fear is loneliness, you will worship relationships. You will depend on your relationships to save you. And in the process, you will suffocate those relationships. Uh, If your greatest fear is failure, you will worship achievement. You'll depend on accomplishments to save you, to rescue you, to give you meaning and worth and value. So how do your fears reveal what has actually captured your heart? And I've said this before, but we live in a photoshopped world. We are photoshopped people. We have the power to edit our profiles, metaphorically speaking. We are constantly doing our best to put our best foot forward, to conceal those parts of us that are bad and dark and weak. Why do we do that? Because at some level, we worship acceptance. We worship uh, approval. We worship love. Those things aren't byproducts of something that we have. Those are things we we worship, and we will do anything to get it, even if that means lying to our spouse without even realizing it. Um, So how do your fears reveal what has actually captured your heart? Behind everything you worship is the fear that without this person or without this thing, you'd be lost. So your fears are either causing you to worship things like success, your children, the idea of getting married, a good reputation, believing that without them life would be meaningless, or your fears lead you to worship God, believing that without him life wouldn't be worth living because he alone can provide you with everything you need. He alone. And trust me, you need more than the ability to pay your mortgage and put gas in your car and put food on the table, as important as those things are. There are deeper hungers and cravings that are at the core of who you are that only God is big enough to fill. The hunger and the craving for love, for acceptance, for forgiveness, deep, clean, slate-like forgiveness. Um, Experiencing Real freedom in life begins, it begins, it doesn't end there, but it begins with identifying what idols you worship. That's where real freedom begins. Because idols make life heavy. It's not that work and relationships and hobbies and loved ones are wrong. It's that we all too often try to save ourselves through these things. 
is that we all too often depend on these things to be our rescue, to be our salvation. We try to secure for ourselves love and meaning and worth in and through all of these things. So it's not that these things are bad, as I said a few minutes ago. They are good gifts from God. God wired us to be loved. He wired us to be approved. He wired us to be accepted. But when we begin looking to anything or anyone smaller than God and specifically what he did for us in Jesus to meet that need, that thing or those people become idols. Um, When we turn good things into ultimate sources of salvation, we ruin the good things that we were meant to enjoy because we end up leaning into those things with a pressure that they can't bear. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Because to be honest with you, this uh, really in some way lies at the root of almost all relational tension we experience. Um, When we turn good things into ultimate sources of salvation, like my spouse or the well-being of my kids, um, We ruin the good things we were meant to enjoy because we lean into those things with a pressure they cannot bear. In other words, if my sense of security, worth, my sense of safety and purpose is entirely dependent on how Jenna turns out, for instance, or how Nate turns out, I am going to put so much pressure on them to save me by what they do and decide not to do, by which track they take in life, that it will end up ruining our relationship. I will, I will be depending on them to be for me and to deliver to me what only Jesus promises to be and deliver. And so it creates relational tension. You've experienced this, parents, I'm sure. You know, we all idolize our kids to a certain degree. Uh, And, you know, when your kids want to get away from us, okay, when our kids want to get away from us, part of the reason is because they feel the pressure to become what we need them to become, to do what we need them to do. We see this in marriage too. Uh, Almost for the last 20 some odd years, most of the marriage counseling I have done uh, for whatever the circumstances may be that are causing problems in the marriage, Uh, the root of it is that at some level, this spouse is depending on this spouse or this spouse is depending on this spouse to be for them and to provide to them what only God has promised to be and provide. And so we lean into that relationship uh, and we put a pressure on it that it's not meant to bear. And as a result, we end up ruining it. We take something good that God created for us to enjoy and we ruin it. Um. So when our kids let us down or our health fades or the job is lost or the dream never comes true, we end up resenting those things. You were supposed to save me and you didn't. You didn't do the right thing. I was depending on you to save me and to invest my life with a sense of security and meaning and you failed. And in failing me... I fail to be saved. So you could put it this way. Every attempt on our part to fix someone else is a subtle attempt to fix ourselves. I need you to become a certain way if I'm going to be happy. 
idolatry runs deep. Okay? So I hope that we never read past the first two commandments again and say, I got that one. I'm not guilty of that. Uh, I'll tell you the reason why, as we'll see in the weeks to come, we are direly guilty of all the rest of those commandments that follow is because we're guilty of the first two. That's why. Um, But we'll look at that starting next week. Um, So, as I said, when... You know, when our kids let us down or our health fades or our dream doesn't come true, we end up resenting those things because we were depending on those things to save us. This is one reason why marriages break down. We get married because we're counting on our spouse to save us. And when they prove incapable of doing so, we begin to resent them. Um, in Jonah, one of my favorite books of the Bible... I will preach through Jonah sometime, maybe in 2021, if not then, 2022. We'll see. Anyway, um, one of my favorite books in the Bible. I actually think, don't hold me to this, because we've got a long way to go in the Ten Commandments, but I actually think when I'm done with this, I'm going to preach through the book of Job. I've had enough conversations with people about the hardness of life and suffering and where is God in messy things to want to preach through the book of Job. So we'll see. Don't hold me to this, but we'll see. I can be bribed, by the way. If you, re- if you really want to hear the book of Job, I can be bought. Um, but Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, it says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Well, what, what, is, what does that mean? What it means is idols are grace robbers. Because in turning away from the one whose love saves us thoroughly to our own self-salvation projects, when we disregard God's salvation project and embark on our own self-salvation project, we end up turning away from grace and turning to self-imposed law. You better do more. You better try harder. You better get better because your salvation, your meaning, your worth, your value is dependent on your effort. So you better do it. But when Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, he means that when we come to him, he gives us everything we need. Everything. He means that because he fulfilled the law for us, we don't have to depend on ourselves to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. We don't have to depend on our craftiness, our ingenuity, our intelligence, our personality, our ability to get people to do what we need them to do. That's an exhausting way to live. This brings huge relief and freedom to our lives because we find ourselves now enjoying our work, now enjoying our relationships because we don't need these things to save us anymore, you know? Um, When you don't need your spouse to save you, to love you the way only God can love you, you can enjoy your spouse. And when they fail you, you expect it, (laughs) And forgiveness comes easy in the face of forgiveness comes easy in the face of failed expectations. You know? It does. When you realize 
When you realize that your spouse can't be God and won't be God, you forgive them when they fail to be God. It comes a little bit easier. Now we can finally abandon, because of what Jesus has done for us, we can finally abandon our self-salvation projects, which induce so much stress and pressure and tension and unhappiness in our lives. So much. In Jesus, the life-giving God speaks into the death of our darkest fears and says, you're free. It is finished. He says to his enemies, you are my friends. He says to the desperate, you are delivered. He says to the lost, you are found. He says to the worn out, come to me, my burden is light. He says to the wounded, you are healed. He says to the dirty, you are clean. He says to the loveless, I love you. And there's nothing you can do about it. The gospel is called good news because it really, really is. It relieves us from the pressure to find happiness and love on our own. So we sing pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. What else do you need? What else do we need? We are foolish idolaters who look to things infinitely smaller than Jesus to do for us, to deliver to us, and to be for us what only Jesus has promised to do and be. And he's done it. He's done it. He's done it. It's the best deal ever. He's done it. He's done it. It's over. He says it is finished, which means you and I live under a banner that reads, it's finished. Everything you need, everything you long for, I have delivered to you for free. So you no longer have to spend your lives trying to get to the front, trying to attain, trying to take, trying to get trying to be, trying to become. You don't, you don't need to do that anymore. It's exhausting. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest from all that stuff. I've done it. Let's pray together. If you've enjoyed this message, be sure to subscribe to the Sanctuary Podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.